Luke chapter 14 is where we are uh, this morning. And once again, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is dining in the home of a religious leader. So the Gospels often give us that sort of scene. And ever the observant visitor, he sees some things that he's compelled to correct in this scene. But it's not the, the things themselves that are the problem. It's what lies behind those things that troubles him. And so you young Christians, as you listen to this scripture, as I read it to you, see if you can tell what are the things that Jesus corrects. And more than that, what lies behind those things that troubles him so much? Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took hold of him and healed him and let him go. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And when he noticed how those who were invited chose the places of honor, he told them a parable, saying, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would meet us here in your word, that you would, by your spirit, stir our souls and make us, Lord, to be alive to your word, because your word certainly is alive to the souls of your people. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see uh, behind the scenes here a bit, help us to recognize and see what you're doing, not just in the lives of these people 2,000 years ago, but in the lives of your people, us today, and help us to see your love for us in Jesus more clearly, and we pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. I started the Whole30 diet about a week ago. I know, you're impressed. I finished it two days later. I kind of suspected that might be the case for me. I wasn't too urgent to have a diet, but not one like that anyway. Everybody needs a diet, a healthy diet, a reasonable diet. But but the Whole30 diet was to me kind of like a picky house guest. 
pointing out everything that it didn't like about me. So, no sugar. I, I get that. I mean, I realize, I know that, that added sugar, sugar isn't everything. We, we use lots of sugar in our diet, and that's a really bad thing. So, hear me say that. Lots of sugar is a bad thing. It can become a toxic poison that will kill us all. I, I know. I know that. But I like honey in my coffee. And bees make honey. And bees are perfect. So, you know, that's one strike. And then it, it says no grains. You can't eat any grains. And, you know, again, I kind of get that because gluten is in grains and gluten can cause trouble. And, and maybe gluten causes some trouble for me. And I, need, I, I try to kind of avoid it. I'm not like gluten free, but I try to avoid it mostly when I can. And, and I realize that can be a problem. But in this category falls quinoa. I mean, the whole 30 says no quinoa. And quinoa has no gluten. And it has lots of protein. I mean, it's like a super power food for superheroes. I like quinoa because I'd like to be a superhero. So that's another strike against it. And and then it says, no legumes. So for you lay people out there, that means beans, right? And, you know, again, I kind of realize that that can be a wise thing to, to refrain from beans for someone who wants to have, you know, some social acceptance in the world. But peanuts are legumes, and I love peanut butter. I mean, natural peanut, healthy peanut butter, that's it's good for me. I like peanut butter apples. And so that's another strike against it, so three strikes. But it even gets this strike, which is even worse. No alcohol and no baked goods. Okay, so on those, I realize what it's saying is stay away from the liquor store and stay away from the donuts shop. And, and you know, oftentimes that can be you know, wise, good things in moderation. It says no good things at all, but no alcohol, <laughs> no baked, no, no baked goods. And, and in a sense, I see there's some wisdom in that. But what that also means is no communion table. Do you realize that? So that was the fourth strike and it was out. I mean, the picky house guest was showing my faults and, and I'd had enough. I kind of I hate to say it this way, and I mean no disrespect to Jesus at all, but in this passage, Jesus is that house guest. Did you recognize it? Did you see it happening? Here, did you notice three times he observes faults that he sees in this passage? And three times he points them out. And infinitely better than any temporary diet, three times he He quickly and flawlessly makes gospel object lessons of them all. If he is a picky house guest, it's because he sees a theme. And the theme is not poor choice of food. The theme is poor estimation of God. So if you think back to Psalm 145, which you heard read earlier this morning, Psalm 145 is written by David. And David, in that psalm, positively is trying to encourage the praise of God. That's what he does in that psalm. It's a praise psalm. But negatively, he is seeking in that psalm to discourage our underestimating of God. If you listen, if you go back and read that psalm, you'll see what David is saying there is that God is more than you think he is. God is 
more mighty and glorious than you think that he is. He's more splendid and wondrous and awesome than you think that he is. God is more righteous and steadfast. He's more powerful. He's even more unsearchable, David says, than you think that he is. And so David's psalm, as you listen to it, as you read it, should cause you to question yourself. Have I underestimated God? In the smallness of your life relative to the world, has God become less and less to you rather than more and more? Because growth in gospel maturity means that the world becomes less and people become less and you become less as God becomes more. Jesus here on the occasion of this dinner party can't help but to point out that God is more. He's more than you can grasp. He's more than you can imagine. He's more than you can conceive of in your mind and in your heart. He is more in all of the the metaphysical and supernatural ways of deity, to be sure. But he's also more in the ways of ordinary human longings. And so there are three things, three object lessons to see here. The first one is this. God is more compassionate than you think that he is. Now, I'm certain that you hear this in this church often. I feel like you do. I'm pretty sure that you do. But still, our hearts persuade us that God demands spiritual performance from us. Now, yes, you must pursue the work of sanctification if you're a Christian. We will say that often. You must pursue the work of sanctification if you are a Christian. There's some work to do. But the reality of the gospel is that God has invited you to rest in him not to perform for him. We saw this a couple of weeks ago, just in the previous chapter of Luke, where there was a, another, another Sabbath occasion, and we saw those two things about Jesus. If you remember that on the Sabbath day, for one, Jesus is going to be in the synagogue, and for two, Jesus is probably going to heal someone because the gospel accounts tell us all of these occasions when Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, then that just gets under the skin of the religious leader's And the point there was that the kingdom of God comes with healing compassion and not with religious hoop jumping as much as we might like to jump through hoops. That woman in that case had a physical and and even spiritual curse. Luke described it as her back was bent over. She was painfully and permanently almost disabled. It's remarkable that she was at the synagogue on that day and Jesus freed her from her curse. And it upset the ruler of the synagogue on that occasion. On this time, this occasion, it's a Sabbath again, but we're not in the synagogue, we're in someone's home. And it's the the midday meal. Jesus is there in this home to literally break bread, to eat bread, Luke tells us, with these, these people. And it's a party. There are various guests there along with Jesus. And Luke tells us, he gives us a little bit of a hint in verse 1. He says, They were watching him carefully. They were scrutinizing him. They were 
They were not just curious about him. I think the suggestion is they were lying in wait, anticipating him, doing something that would justify their hatred of him. They were watching him carefully, and it seems they'd set him up. So verse 2, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So here in this verse, we read these words, and behold, and, and I've mentioned this to you before, we don't speak like this, we don't say and behold, but, but in the Greek language there, this is a term which we, we do still sort of use. It, it kind of introduces an element of surprise in this case. You know, we might say, and you wouldn't believe it, there was a man with dropsy at the party. There's a a hint, a suggestion to that, right? An element of surprise. That man doesn't belong there, is the point. He shouldn't have been there. But he was invited. Dropsy is an old word that refers to the, the swelling of the soft tissue of the body because it's holding water. And I imagine that just that Condition itself was uncomfortable, embarrassing, painful, frustrating, all of those things. Fill in the adjectives. It was all those things, I'm sure. But the swelling of the, of the body because it's holding water is not so much the problem. It's actually the symptom of a greater problem that lies behind it, which is probably organ disease. The liver, the kidneys, the heart even are are slowly failing, and the body is responding to that and holding water in self-defense, I guess. And, and this is what this man had. This man is, is suffering a long and slow and probably, I guess, painful death. And it seems that he'd been invited to this party for a particular reason, probably unbeknownst to him. His presence there is a statement by these religious leaders to Jesus. And you can tell that that's the case in verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He responded to them. They hadn't asked him anything. They hadn't said anything. They were just watching him carefully. And there's this man behold before him. Behold, there's this man before him. Surprise. And Jesus evidently recognized the deal, and he responded to their statements. And he asked them this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? That was their statement to him, and now they have a chance to state their case to him. They can answer yes or no. But they know, I guess, if they answer no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then They would be faithful to their particular view of this law, which they held dear, but they'd also show themselves in this crowd to be hard-hearted towards this suffering man. They didn't want to do that, I guess. But if they said, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then they would be surely divided and fighting among themselves. And they also would give Jesus license to do the very thing they want to tempt him to do so they can throw stones at him. And so they can't say yes or no, so they just remain silent. They just want to trap him. But the coming kingdom of God won't be trapped. 
That's the thing. You have to recognize the coming kingdom of God won't be trapped by human efforts at religious performance, at religious hoop jumping. God is more compassionate than you think that he is. In fact, compassion is is one of the great driving forces behind God's very mission to bring his kingdom. It's the reason why he's invited you to reason with him, to, to recognize his reasoning with you that your sins are as scarlet, but he will, by the work of Jesus Christ, make them to be as white as snow. And in that gospel truth, you find rest. Rest in your justification by faith in the righteousness of Christ alone before God. You find rest because God longs to come alongside you in Christ and to take up your troubles. He's more compassionate than you think that he is. And so Jesus took hold of the man and he healed him and he let him go. Now, once again, I would love to have been there and seen this scene unfold and watch this man. I mean, I don't know. You know what happened? Did his swelling just dry up and suddenly his heart was strong again? I mean, I imagine he felt something of a difference in his life. All of a sudden, in that moment, Jesus healed him and he let him go. Now, for some of you, the question that lingers in your mind, in the back of your mind, is this. Could this have really happened? Because this is a natural miracle. This, this is totally contrary to the physical laws of nature as we know them. People don't just heal people. And the gospel accounts confront us with that all the time. So don't take that for granted. Really, don't take that for granted. We do that. We just assume. We, we, don't, we pass by these healing miracles and we don't pause for a moment to realize that what we need to know is that God is more powerful than you think he is too. But for some at this house party, the question was a little bit different. They, they saw Jesus heal the man. Their question came to be a bit different. How much do I have to perform before I can rest before God, how much do I have to perform? How much do I have to do? How many hoops do I have to jump through? How many Sabbath days do I have to observe perfectly before God will let me rest? They need to see that God is more compassionate than they thought that he is. And so Jesus asks this next question, verse 5, and he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. Now, we'd ask a similar sort of question in the previous chapter at the synagogue. This time he elaborates a bit. How many of you, you, having a son, a child, a daughter, or an ox who's fallen into a well, into a pit, into a hole in the ground, would not immediately, on the Sabbath day even, pull them out? the assumed answer is all of you would do that. He, he had seen them do it. He knew he'd been walking among them on, and seen them on the Sabbath. He knew that this, this happened. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are qualifications to allow for this sort of thing in the Sabbath law because the Sabbath, the principle of Sabbath in Scripture is not a restriction, which is what we often 
want to tag it with. It's not a restriction. It is rather a freedom. It's God saying to his people, hey, stop your labors and rest in me. And find refreshment in me. Find freedom in me. And so Jesus' question to them is, you would do the same, wouldn't you? His comparison is not exactly apples to apples, though. You have to to see here. The son, a, a, a daughter, a child falling into a well, a hole in the ground, or an ox even, some livestock, falling into a hole in the ground is more urgent than this man with the dropsy. The, the, the man with the dropsy could have waited till tomorrow. Technically, he probably wasn't going to die tonight. He probably could have waited till tomorrow for a healing. But, but uh, you know, a child falls into the, the ditch, and it's urgent. They need to be rescued now. And yet Jesus showed compassion on the lesser of the two, didn't he? Because what was really more urgent was what was behind the scenes. These people needed to see that God is more compassionate than they think that He is. Because He's invited you to rest in Him, not to perform for Him. He's more compassionate than you think. And God is also more generous than you think He is. He's more generous than you think that He is. Apart from the Gospel, we are Deeply, deeply tempted to try to forge a place for ourselves. So verse 7, when Jesus noticed how those who were invited chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. Now, Jesus is, is not just being a picky house guest here. He's being a very discerning counselor. These people may be watching him carefully, but he's seeing them very deeply. Meals in the ancient world were a, a, a social ritual, a very important social ritual. They kind of still are today, somewhat, in some different sort of ways. It was a demonstration of one's social class, a demonstration of one's place in the world, in the society, in the, the city where they lived. It still kind of is today, isn't it, in, in some cases, depending on the meal that you attend. And uh, the guest who had the greatest status, the greatest place among these people would be seated nearest the host. So in this case, probably the table would have been arranged in kind of a horseshoe shape, kind of a, well, it's it's upside down to you, but a U-shaped. And the, the host would sit in the arch, the center of that horseshoe. And the guests would be arranged down either side from most important close to the host to least important further away. So the host could see all of his guests and the host could be closest to the most important people because that's kind of what we want to do, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a human desire to be close to the important people. And so the pecking order was established. It was a display of who had more capital. A display of who had more material capital, to be sure, because I imagine that that wealthy people came into the dinner party with a bit more status than than poor people. A display of of relational capital. Maybe somebody didn't have as much money, but they were the likable soul, the, the one that everybody loved, and maybe they had a sense of humor that made everybody laugh and that made them important. Maybe they had had respect capital. Everybody respected them because they were successful or for some reason. Or maybe, 
I'm not sure if this is the case in the first century, but it is today. Maybe they had cool capital. They're just cool. Some people are just cool. You know who I'm talking about. You might think I'm talking about you. <laughs> Some people are just cool, and they, and they have capital, and that makes them important in society. And this is not just an ancient ritual. It's a modern one, too. You know, you see it in the school cafeteria. You kids, you, you see this every day in the school cafeteria. Somebody's sitting at the center of the horseshoe, and other people are around them. And if you don't have enough capital, you're far away from the one who has it. That's the way that it works. It even works in the adult world, in the corporate world. I haven't been around corporate offices in some years, um, but I know it probably still works this way. You know, the, the really important person, the CEO, has the corner office, as they say. And the kind of sub-important people are in offices close to the CEO, and the, the nobodies are in the cubicles down on the third floor or whatever, right, or the basement. That's just kind of the way that it works, That's the way that our society functions even still today. You see it even on an airplane. So this is the way that we behave with each other. When an airplane touches down, it's taxiing to the runway, the the flight attendant always says, remain seated until the airplane gets to the the gate. And then when it does and that, that light flashes off and you hear the ding, what happens? You know what happens. People... I mean, they have thrown their seatbelts off. They're ready in position to jump out in the aisle and claim their spot and get their, their bent. I mean, they're, and then they try to make their way forward before other people can get up. Why do they do that? I'm assuming you don't. But why do they do that? Because they're more important. They're more hurried than you are. They are more significant than you are. They have more capital in their own eyes anyway than you have. And so they want to get to the front of the line. Apart from the gospel, we need to prove ourselves. We just do. But that's a risky proposition. And so Jesus offers a warning in verse 8. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. Jesus is really just quoting from the Proverbs. You know, the Proverbs, of course, said this already. In Proverbs 25, you read, Don't exalt yourself in the king's presence, and don't claim a place among great people. It's better for him to say, the king, to say to you, Come up here, than for him to humiliate you before others. This is old wisdom. It's old gospel wisdom. Because the gospel is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New our pride, I mean, our pride is, is what's on the line here. It is a risky thing to forge a place for yourself. Because the world is not generous. And apart from the gospel, all you have is pride. C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, I think there's a chapter about pride. And, and he describes it there. He, he explains that pride is a competitive element of your nature. And he says, pride gets no pleasure out of getting something. It only gets pleasure out of having more of something than the next person has. I think that's really true. You don't really care how much you have as long as you have more than that person has. That's the way we work. That's, that's the nature of our hearts. Because pride requires that you 
seek a verdict, as it were, from other people. It requires that you see other people acknowledge your place. We really just want to demonstrate to the world that we don't have nothing. We just want to demonstrate to the world that we are not nothing, but rather that we're something. Madonna is, of course, kind of the matriarch of of pop cultural icons nowadays. And in an interview some years ago, she exposed her soul when she said these words. Listen to this. She said, My drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself to be a special person. But then I feel that I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended. And I guess it never will. That's Madonna, worldwide superstar. Our pride betrays the fact that we have underestimated God. He is more generous than you think that he is. And and here's what that means. It means that God has freed you to be nothing because he's given you everything. Verse 10, Jesus says, But when you're invited... Go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus is not just giving a lesson in social etiquette here, right? He's giving an exhortation in gospel truth. God's generosity to you in the righteousness of Christ, has freed you to be nothing because He's given you everything. And because you have everything in Christ, you can give yourself in humility. Lewis, again, C.S. Lewis explains it this way. Somewhere he wrote that pride is like a mirror and humility is like a window. And what it means is this. So, for example, if you come to me and say to me and describe to me all about something that happened to you this week, something that really marked your week and, and you're still thinking about it, and you've come and you've told, you've told me about this thing that happened to you this week, if my heart is ruled by pride, then I look at you and I see a mirror, which means that in your great event that week, I don't see you, I see myself. And what happens in me is I begin to just kind of anticipate the moment when you're going to finish your story so I can tell you that something similar happened to me, but mine was actually bigger than yours. That's what happens because pride is a mirror. Do you see that? And at the same time, humility is a window. So when you come to me and tell me about this thing that happened, If humility rules my heart, then I don't see myself so much in you as I see a window through which I can see into your soul and understand a bit better what's going on with you so that I can actually care for you because I can give myself to you in humility. Pride is a mirror. Pride makes us want to talk about ourselves. Garfield the cat, who's a pretty good theologian sometimes, 
said to his friend, the dog, Odie. One time Garfield said, I'm tired of talking about me, Odie. You talk about me for a while. (laughs) That's what our pride does to us. Apart from the gospel, you'll see mirrors and not windows. Again, Lewis described it this way. He said, humility is not that you think less of yourself, but that you think of yourself less. And how would you do that? By recognizing that God is more generous than you think he is. And then lastly, this third object lesson is this. God is more gracious than you think that he is. Having diffused the deceit of the trap they'd set for him at this party and and then relieved the guests, I guess, of their self-imposed social pressures, Jesus now turns his attention to the host of the party with another object lesson. And in doing so, he essentially asks the host this question. He says to them, Do you understand the grace of the God whom you say you worship? That's what he asks in verse 12 and following. He he said to the man who'd invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Now, some of you who are, are, are social folks, you, you love to have parties and you love to host parties like this. And as you read this, these words might make you feel a little bit guilty. And if they do, then you need to go back to point number one and remember that God has invited you to rest in him, not to perform before him. Right? There is no guilt in enjoying your friends. There is no guilt in enjoying your relatives, even your rich neighbor. Invite them over to your house. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. I think the rub is in your motivation. If you do some good for someone because you expect something in return, then you haven't done good for them. You've used them. And because this motivation resides deep in our hearts, we assume it of God too. We underestimate how gracious He really, really is. What is grace? It's kind of theology 101. What is grace? Again, well, grace is favor or blessing or some good thing that we don't deserve to have but is given to us anyway. In fact, in in scriptural terms, it's even stronger than that. Grace is favor and blessing and goodness that God bestows upon people who actually deserve the opposite. That's what grace is. That God bestows those things upon people who owe so much that they can't possibly ever repay. Why does Jesus paint this picture of Dinner parties with the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Why does he do that? Because that's the dinner party that God has thrown for us. And because he has, God has enabled you to forego repayment. Because he will provide for you in the end. Jesus 
said the same thing to his disciples when that rich young man, if you remember elsewhere in the Gospels, this rich young man comes to Jesus and is, he's done all this impressive stuff, plus he has money. And Jesus tells him, you need to sell your things and, and give it away to the poor and come follow me. And the man walks away sad. And the disciples are just dismayed at this. And, and they say to him, what about us, Jesus? Because we don't have as much to give away as that guy. And Jesus' answer is, there is no one who has left the good things of this life who will not receive a hundredfold in the age to come. If you are in Christ, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God is more gracious than you think that he is. So, if that's the case, then why, why do you expect repayment from your relationships? Because you do. It's, it's really standard fare in this world to expect to get something in return for your relational troubles. You know, if you call someone your best friend, oftentimes, in reality, what you mean is something down deep in you expects something in return. You expect for that person to make you look better. You expect for that person to make you happier. You expect for that person to help you climb the ladder, so to speak, to get to the middle of the horseshoe. That's just kind of what's in, in, in our souls, isn't it? And if you call a church your home, there's often something down deep by which you expect that church to do something for you, to, to provide something for you, to give something for you, to lift you up in some way. And There are some elements in which that's true, but there's something down deep in us that just expects to be repaid. Even worse, if you call someone your husband or your wife, there's something down deep by which you expect that person to satisfy your desires, to fulfill your needs, to give you what you want. You expect even that one to repay you somehow. Why do we do that? Because we're all, we're all very well-trained business people. You may not think you are, but you are. We're all very well-trained business people. We demand a return on our investment. We, we want the return on whatever we invest. We want to be repaid. It's the way that our hearts work. Deep down, we assume that we're doing God a favor. And how absurd is that? Thomas Wheeler was the CEO, the chief executive officer of the Mass Mutual Life Insurance Company. And he told a story one time of a road trip that he took with his wife. They were driving out, out of their city and into the countryside. And they had to stop to gas up the car. They stopped at a gas station along the way. And as he gassed up the car, he noticed his wife was talking to the attendant at the gas station. And, and she gave him a hug, and they were talking in an odd sort of way. It's kind of surprising. They got back in the car, and they drove away. And he said to his wife, did you know that man? And she said, yeah, actually, honey, a few years ago, years ago before I met you, I actually dated that man for a year. And... Wheeler couldn't help, he couldn't resist it. He had to take a jab at his wife and he said, Honey, aren't you lucky that I came along 
Because if you had married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant instead of the wife of a CEO. And his wife did not miss a beat. She responded and she said, Dear, if I had married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the gas station attendant. (laughs) We overestimate ourselves in the same way. And so, because we do, we underestimate God's grace. Aren't you lucky that I came along, God? Aren't you lucky that I'm here? Aren't you happy, God, that I'm here in this theater today? Aren't you lucky that I claim you as my God? How absurd is that? We forget that we are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And he has invited us to his table to eat and drink of the righteousness of Christ. And because you do by faith, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You don't need to be repaid now. God is more gracious than you thought he was, and that is enough. Why do we underestimate God? Why do we do it? Because we overestimate everything else. God is more compassionate than you think He is. He's invited you to rest in Him, not to perform for Him. God is more generous than you think He is. He has freed you to be nothing because He's given you everything in Christ. And God is more gracious than you think He is. He has enabled you to forego repayment because He will provide for you in the end. God is more than you think He is. So be content with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.